You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey, it's your buddy AJ from the Wife Files. And Hecklefish. Right, and Hecklefish. We just wanted to tell you that if you want to start a podcast, Spotify makes it easy. It'd have to be easy for humans to understand it. Will you stop that? I'm just saying... Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts from your computer. I don't have a computer. Do you have a phone? Of course I have a phone. I'm not a savage. Well, with Spotify, you can record podcasts from your phone, too. Spotify makes it easy to distribute your podcast to every platform, and you can even earn money. I do need money. What do you need money for? You're kidding? I'm getting killed on Guppy support payments. These three ex-wives are expensive. But you don't want to support your kids? What are you, my wife's lawyer now? Never mind. And I don't know if you noticed, but all Wi-Fi's episodes are video, too. And there's a ton of other features, but... But we can't be here all day. Will you settle down? I need you to hurry up with this stupid commercial. I got a packed calendar today. I'm sorry about him. Anyway, check out Spotify for podcasters. It's free, no catch, and you can start today. Are we done? We're done, but you need to check your attitude. Excuse me, but I don't have all day to sit here and talk about Spotify. Look, this would go a lot faster if you would just let me get through it without... When Ingo Swan released his book titled Penetration in 1998, he claimed to be a psychic who was employed by the CIA to remote view the dark side of the moon, specifically to look for alien presence. It sounded like science fiction, but in 2006, when the CIA started releasing documents on the Stargate project, Swan's participation in the program was confirmed. When Swan was asked about the existence of extraterrestrials, he said not only were they already here, but they are building something on the far side of the moon. And, according to Swan, these aliens aren't friendly. Let's find out why. When Ingo Swan was a child, his family noticed he had psychic potential. When he got older, he wanted to explore this talent, so he began volunteering for experiments in ESP. At first... Researchers tested Swan to see if he could influence plants with mental activity or alter the temperature of an environment using his mind. And Swan was successful enough that more and more scientists became interested in him. But it was a few years later where Ingo Swan would find his specialty. In the early 1970s, Swan was part of a study for the American Society of Psychical Research. And this study involved Swan sitting in a chair and attempting to project his consciousness into sealed boxes, which contained symbols that Swan would try to read. During one experiment, he was asked to see what he saw inside of a box, and Swan said he saw nothing, just darkness. The researcher was disappointed and said, oh, that's too bad, let's try something else. Swan said, no, I see darkness because the light bulb inside the box is burnt out. The researcher was puzzled. He walked over to the box, opened it, and sure enough, the light was out, and a star was born. Ingo Swan's success in these early experiments got the attention of the Stanford Research Institute. You might remember the SRI from our Project Stargate video, which I'll link below. SRI had been remote viewing places around the world for years, but once they found Ingo Swan, who was extremely successful at this, they wondered if he could remote view other places in the solar system. There was an experiment in 1973 where Ingo Swan was asked to project his consciousness to the planet Jupiter. At first, Swan rejected the idea, 
And Goswan never wanted to remote view anything that couldn't be confirmed. There are plenty of frauds who claim to have psychic abilities, and Swan valued his reputation. He didn't see any value in going to Jupiter if his observations couldn't be confirmed. But the researchers at SRI told Swan Jupiter was chosen because NASA had probes on the way there right now. So Swan agreed, and he made a lot of observations about Jupiter that the Pioneer probes soon confirmed. He saw a hydrogen mantle, rotating storms like cyclones, he mentioned high infrared readings, the colors of the clouds, and ice crystals in the atmosphere. The probes confirmed all this? They did. Skeptics will say all these observations could be deduced, like, of course, Jupiter has violent storms, we can see them. Same with the color of clouds, infrared, and atmospheric ice crystals. Even if we can't see this stuff, we can deduce that they're there. But Swan saw something else, something new. He said he saw a ring around Jupiter, just like Saturn's ring. But Jupiter's ring, according to Swan, was much smaller than Saturn's and closer to the planet. He said it was made up of dust and tiny asteroids. This was not something we could see from Earth or even assume was there. Did the probes see the ring? The Pioneer probes in 1973 and 1974 did not see a faint ring around Jupiter. Oh. But when Voyager 1 passed by Jupiter in 1979... Tell me there was a ring. There was a ring. Yeah. I am not this body in terms of consciousness, and consciousness can go places where the body cannot. Ingo Swam was so accurate as a remote viewer that people began to take notice, specifically the United States government. Of course. In March 1975, Ingo Swan received a call at 3 in the morning. He was told to go to Washington and visit the Museum of Natural History. There, he should stand near the elephant in the central rotunda at noon. So, he does. Right on schedule, a military-looking man approaches him and hands him a card. It reads, Do not speak or ask questions. This is for our safety as well as yours. Please follow me. He's led to a car and seated next to another military-looking man. And in his book, he calls these guys the twins. And twin number two hands him another card. It reads, Please do not speak. We need to search you for listening devices. They do and he's handed one final card. We would like your help on a project suited to your talent. Are you comfortable in a helicopter? Well, Swan takes a long moment, finally nods. The twins take the cards from Ingo Swan's hand, then a bag is placed over his head, and the car speeds away. Though Ingo Swan couldn't see, he felt that he was driven around in circles, Eventually, he's led from the car where he hears a helicopter spinning up. His face still shrouded, he's buckled in and flown to a location in or near Washington, D.C. When the helicopter lands, Swan is led to a quiet building and then into an elevator. The doors open and the bag is finally removed. Swan blinks his eyes, adjusting to the light. Then a kindly-looking man introduces himself as Mr. Axelrod. Ingo Swan is obviously nervous. And Mr. Axelrod sees this, he smiles, tells him not to worry, that he's in no danger and offers him a cigar. Swan gladly takes one. It's his brand. The men go to an office, sit and enjoy a cigar where Mr. Axelrod makes a proposal. Axelrod says he represents a group who would like Swan to participate in a remote viewing project. For his effort, he would be paid $1,000 a day in cash, which in today's money is over $6,000 a day. Inflation, huh? Yep. Are we going to talk about the Federal Reserve and what a scam it is? Uh, not in this video. Audit the Fed! Okay. Settle down. So, Ingo Swan really needs the money. But to get it, there are a few catches. First, he can't reveal any of this to anyone and can't speak of it for at least 10 years. 
The other catch is for the next few days, Swan isn't to leave the facility. He'll be provided with a comfortable room, TV, a gym, swimming pool, and anything he needs. But if he takes the job, he stays on site under constant surveillance. Now, Ingo Swan is quiet for a while. As crazy as the past few years have been, he's never been through anything like this. Mysterious calls in the middle of the night, clandestine meetings, subterranean facilities, and now a kind but strange man offers him a lot of cash for an unknown mission. Axelrod sees Swan processing all of this and finally asks if he agrees to the terms. Swan nods that he does. Axelrod puts out his cigar, shakes Swan's hand and says, good, get some rest. Tomorrow, we begin. has very distinct features of a satellite dish. It's got the dish itself, the crater shape. It's got a long spike that appears to come out of the middle. All sorts of stuff that looks exactly like a satellite dish on Earth looks. The next morning, Axelrod tells Ingo Swan that he'll be remote viewing the moon. And Swan is confused by this. But Axelrod reminds him... No questions. Right. And Swan is given a list of coordinates and goes through them one by one. Some locations, he doesn't see anything. But others, he was able to view large cliffs, see craters, dunes of white powder, all the things you'd expect to see on the moon. Finally, Swan comes across something interesting and confusing. He describes seeing tracks on the surface, tracks that seem to have been made by tractors or some kind of machinery. He sees patterns that look like they were made by wind, even though the moon has no atmosphere. Supposedly. Supposedly. Swan gets the sense that there is atmosphere there. Then Swan moves into a crater which is filled with a green haze. Something is generating light. And Swan notes that the light is diffused. And diffused light isn't possible on the moon. You need an atmosphere to scatter the light. So if it's not the atmosphere, what is it? He moves closer to the light. Swan sees something that looks like an airfield. He describes large structures like hangars, roads, towers, and machinery. Across craters and chasms, there are bridges. Evidence of a lot of activity, industrial activity. Cut into the rocks are perfectly round holes, like they were dug with large earth-moving equipment. He moves to a different location and sees some structures emitting light of all different colors. Swan goes in for a closer look. The domes have windows, and even though the area was dark, he could see a fine mist inside the structures and that same eerie green glow. Swan moves closer. He goes right up to the windows. Inside, he describes humanoid figures that look almost like us. He describes this as an area of high activity. Whoever or whatever these beings are, they're very busy. And Swan continues to observe, describing everything he sees. Suddenly, two of the beings, then three, then a dozen, then more, they just stop. They turn to the window where Swan has projected himself. This makes Swan very nervous. He says, they see me. Then calmly, but urgently, Axelrod says, come back, come back now. Swan says, they're pointing at me. Axelrod tells Swan firmly, please come back quickly away from that place. Swan wills his consciousness back and slowly opens his eyes. Finally, he turns to Axelrod and says, you already know they're psychic, don't you? Axelrod takes a deep breath and says, the experiment is over. It's time for you to go home. Neil and Buzz were on the lunar surface. Neil switched to the, the medical channel and spoke directly with the chief medical officer, saying, they're here, they're parked on the side of the crater, they're watching us. Though Ingo Swan's moon experiment was over, Mr. Axelrod and the secret organization wasn't quite finished with him. About six months after leaving Washington, D.C., 
Swan was in a supermarket. While doing some grocery shopping, he spotted a stunning woman. He describes her as one of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen. What was she wearing? Don't, don't be creepy. Hello, I'm asking for science. Well, Swan says she was barely wearing anything at all. Short shorts, bikini top, and the tallest high heels he'd ever seen. Heels tall, bikini small. She said she liked the ocean. Excuse me? Hello, Cool J. I'm going back to Cali. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> nice. Anyway, Swan was obviously very taken with this woman because the chapter in his book, it's barely safe for work. He says when he saw her, he felt a wave of electricity going through him and felt tingling all over his body. Suddenly, he felt the hair on the back of his neck stand up. And in that moment, he had the distinct feeling that she was an extraterrestrial. Now, Swan was very aware of how ridiculous this sounded, and he was about to chalk it up to him simply being smitten at the sight of her. But then he turned around and saw the twins from the moon experiment. So he panics and runs out of the store. But later that evening, he receives a phone call. And he's told to fly to New York immediately and be in Grand Central Station the next morning and wait for contact. Of course, he goes. When he gets to Grand Central, he sees one of the twins standing near a payphone. He gestures at Swan to come over. The phone rings. It's Mr. Axelrod. Axelrod asks all kinds of questions about his interaction with the woman. And Swan relays the story. At first, Axelrod is suspicious. He demands to know if he knows her, if she saw him, if she might be following him. Now, Swan doesn't understand any of this, and he starts to become frightened and tells Axelrod he's never seen her before and has never had any contact with her. Now, finally, Axelrod tells Swan, just stay away from her. Swan asks who she is. Axelrod says, all you need to know is that she's very dangerous. Swan says he understands, and they chat for a while, and Axelrod asks him how his remote viewing success rate is doing. Swan says he's almost 65% accurate, but not quite there. So Axelrod says, when you get to 65%, write the number 65 on a note on your desk and leave it there. Tell no one, we'll be in touch. And just like that, Axelrod hangs up. And Ingo Swan doesn't hear from Axelrod for a year, but he finally gets his remote viewing success rate to 65%. And just as he was instructed, he writes the number on a slip of paper and places it on his desk and goes home for the night. Now, even though his office is locked and nobody knows the code, when he gets in the following morning, the note is gone. And on his desk is what looks like a light dusting of powder. And in the powder, someone scribbled two words, expect contact. A few days after Ingo Swan was told to expect contact, he was heading to the university cafeteria when Mr. Axelrod appeared. Axelrod walked right up to Ingo Swan, shook his hand, and asked if he could get away for three or four days. Swan said sure, and asked where they were going. Axelrod smiled at him and asked, Have you ever seen a UFO? Holy shit! I didn't mean to see the sound on his face, did it? you hear that? That whistling sound? The private jet landed a few hours later. Ingo Swan wasn't told where they were, but they had been flying due north for hours, so he assumed this was Alaska. It was the middle of the night and very dark and desolate. Mr. Axelrod, the twins, and Ingo Swan then climbed into an unmarked van. Swan was given a thermalized jumpsuit and asked to remove everything metal. They drove two hours through winding mountain roads before stopping under a group of pine trees. Axelrod said that it's very important that we're as quiet as possible. It's a 45-minute hike to their destination, and they can't talk or make any noise whatsoever. Swan nodded in agreement, and they ventured out into the wilderness. The twins were wearing what Swan thought to be night vision goggles because he could barely see a few feet in front of him. In fact, during some parts of the hike, 
He had to be led by the arm so he wouldn't fall into a creek or a hole or stumble over unsteady ground. They finally arrived at the edge of a lake, and Swan asked what he was supposed to do. Axelrod whispered that he should just observe and observe in complete silence, and also to be as still as possible. Axelrod said, they detect heat, noise, and motion like mad. Swan's eyes went wide, and he mouthed the word, they? Axelrod just brought his finger to his lips as if to say, shh. So, the four men sat in silence for a long while until one of the twins made some kind of hand gesture. Axelrod said, it's begun. At first, Swan didn't see anything, just a fog coming off the lake. But slowly the fog began to change. Swan said the fog was emitting light. At first neon blue, which slowly changed what he called angry purple. The fog started getting thicker and thicker, and then up from the lake, a triangle-shaped craft emerged. It was about 90 feet wide and emitted a pulsing hum. Suddenly, beams of light were shooting from the craft, hitting different locations around the area. One of the twins whispered, shouted, we have to move. So they did. Then a beam of energy hit the area where the men were, and Swan remembers hearing a loud crack like lightning. And Swan was so stunned he couldn't move. He had to actually be dragged from the area. And Swan looked over his shoulder and saw water from the lake somehow being pulled into the craft. He described it as a reverse waterfall. And on the drive back, everyone was completely silent. Swan just stared out the window trying to absorb everything he just saw piece it together. When the van arrived at the airport, the sun was starting to come up. Swan said, I finally know what's going on. Axelrod said, go on. Swan said confidently, this was an unmanned drone. And Axelrod, like always, never confirmed or rejected Swan's ideas. He simply asked Swan to continue. Swan said, it's a resupply mission. They're mining the moon and they need our water. Axelrod smiled at this. He didn't agree, but he didn't disagree either. Axelrod shook Swan's hand, thanked him, and gestured toward a waiting plane. Ingo Swan would be flying back alone, and he never saw Axelrod or the twins ever again. Ingo Swan kept his word and didn't speak of any of these events for years. He eventually published a full account of the story in his book, Penetration, which I'll link below. It's a great book. Ingo Swan tells the story with a lot of flair. So if you're interested in stories like this, it's a must read. But... Oh, here we go. But how much of this story is true? I hate this part. I, I, I know, but we have to do it. Yeah, yeah, I know. So let's break down Ingo Swan's story into its parts and see if we can figure out what really happened. We've got the Jupiter mission, the moon mission, the extraterrestrial woman, and the UFO encounter. So let's start with the woman in the supermarket. Ingo Swan felt that this woman was an alien. He thought that maybe an alien or android made to look like an attractive woman was following him. Now, this was the chapter that was most difficult for me to believe. So he didn't see a sexy E.T.? I think he saw the woman, but she was probably human. He was under surveillance by the twins, who we now know to be CIA operatives. I think the most logical explanation is that she was a Soviet spy. Honeypot! Yeah, I I think so. This was the 1970s, and during this time, the United States and Soviet Union were in the middle of what you might call a psychic arms race. We know this from CIA records. We also know that the U.S. was full of Soviet spies. Next, the UFO encounter. This was another tough one for me. It was just a very tidy story. Mr. Axelrod knew exactly where it would appear, how it operated, what it would be doing. I mean, if he wanted Swan to confirm something about the craft, I think he could have done that remotely. 
I mean, if Ingo Swan could put his consciousness on Jupiter, he could certainly go to Alaska. And in his book, Swan describes light rays shooting from the UFO that actually destroyed pine trees and even killed animals. I think this is something that could be confirmed pretty easily, but there's no follow-up on it. Now, as for Jupiter, subsequent observations and probes to the planet confirmed a lot of what Ingo Swan said, and his discovery of Jupiter's rings is really a compelling story. We'd never seen those before, and they were confirmed by Voyager in 1979 and photographed by the New Horizons mission in 2007. Finally, the moon. And this is where things get really strange. The CIA had remote viewers projecting to Jupiter, Mars, and the moon. Even though the remote viewers' reports were highly classified, they're not any longer, and their reports are remarkably similar. The problem with the moon is that the U.S. government simply will not allow us to confirm the details. There are reports of astronauts hearing signals coming from the moon, but those signals are dismissed as interference. We have pictures of what look like huge structures on the moon, but the pictures are fuzzy and can easily be refuted by skeptics as rock formations. What about pictures of the far side of the moon? Well, NASA has plenty of those but they're very stingy with what they release to the public. And if NASA won't tell us what's happening up there, we're going to fill in the blanks ourselves. It's an indisputable fact that Ingo Swam was part of secret government experiments for years. If you search the CIA website, there are hundreds of documents that confirm this. And everyone who worked with Ingo Swan 100% believed he was telling the truth about everything he saw. Now, Swan admitted that he got things wrong plenty of times and was always reluctant to remote view places that couldn't be confirmed. So I don't think he's a liar or a fraud or a hoaxer, but did he really see the things he described? Only you can answer that. If you don't believe in remote viewing, then the answer is easy. No, none of this could be real. These are just stories created by someone with an incredible imagination. But if you do believe in remote viewing, as the U.S. government certainly does, then Ingo Swan might have revealed the most important discovery of humankind, that we are not alone. The best stories are the ones that make you reevaluate everything you've been taught, that make you question every truth you've come to believe. The story of Ingo Swan is one of these. Now, after researching Ingo Swan, I'm left with more questions than answers. But if enough of us keep asking these questions, one day, maybe hundreds of years from now or maybe tomorrow, we'll finally learn the truth. And the truth, whether fantastic or mundane, that's all we want. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. My name is AJ. That's Hecklefish. This has been The Y Files. If you had fun or learned anything, do me a favor and like, subscribe, comment, and share. That stuff really helps the channel. And special thanks to patrons Jim H., Daniel, Mauricio, EW, Grant, Stella, Sal, Dalton, and everybody who makes this channel possible. You guys are the best. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and know that you are appreciated.